Our scripture reading this morning comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command, because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. When man had power over man to his hurt, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night 
do one's eyes see sleep? Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is the word of the Lord. Recently, I was trying to replace the screen on an iPhone where the original screen had cracked. And so I bought a new screen and it came with three screwdrivers. And so as I was going along, taking the phone apart and watching a little video that was to show me each step of the way what to do, I got to one part where it required a screwdriver that had not yet been used and these tiny screws I, I couldn't unscrew. And so I found myself thinking, uh, what should I do about it? Because in the video, the guy sort of just easily uh, unscrewed his screws and I wasn't able to do it. And so I tried all sorts of things. I sort of pressed harder uh, and actually that worked. By pressing really hard, I was able to sort of get it latched in and get it moving. But with this small delicate device, I'm not sure how hard I should be pressing it. So I'm trying to understand what's happening. Maybe were the screws tightened really tightly and I need to apply extra pressure? Maybe, but um, that would be an odd thing to do. Or maybe because the phone was a bit old, uh, stuff had gotten in there and I needed to really push and apply extra pressure, but, I, but it really wasn't working. And so I sort of did some research and Google things and I couldn't find out solutions. I tried pressing a rubber band in to catch it better. After about 20 minutes of what should have taken 30 seconds, I finally got these four screws off. And I was so relieved. I was so glad for it. And then the next section, I was supposed to take, use the same screwdriver for six additional screws. And then as I was trying to do that, everything that I was doing was not working. And I didn't know exactly why. And I started to wonder, is it the screwdriver itself? But that didn't make sense because this is the screwdriver that the people who made the kit uh, included. So it has to be the right screwdriver. So I tried the other screwdrivers. They didn't work. I looked at this screwdriver. It seemed to match up. I thought the problem was with the screwdriver, but I didn't know. I, I, I didn't know what the source of the, the problem was. And so I wound up going to the local hardware store where they told me that they carry real screwdrivers, <laughs> but not these tiny ones. And so that I would have to go elsewhere. So I went home and I ordered one, which meant that here I have this uh, this phone taken apart, these tiny pieces all over the place, and I have to wait. But I don't know, actually, <laughs> if I wait, you know, now the five or seven days or whenever this new screwdriver comes, will I actually be able to use it to, to undo things? Or did I completely misunderstand the situation and the problem is elsewhere? I'm not a super tech guy, a super handy guy, and so maybe I'm just understanding something wrong. That experience, the experience of the frustration, uh, verse one in the reading, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? That was one of those scenarios that I sort of thought I'm not wise and I don't know how to understand what's, what's the problem here. There's a video where everything looks right and I'm trying it, nothing's going the same way. So I am not wise enough to know how to interpret this, 
um, but I have to troubleshoot it. A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face has changed. See, see, when wisdom comes about, all of a sudden the hardness of face becomes relieved. Um, but when you're in that situation where you don't feel wise, where you don't know, where you, you have an interpretation, but it doesn't match the situation, it's frustrating, it's not working, hardness of face. So the end of the story is the screwdriver came and within 15 seconds, all six, all six screws were wrong. I, I interpreted it rightly as it turns out, but I didn't know. I was prepared to have spent additional money, uh, wait all that time and get back and find it's not the screwdriver. And then I would have to go back to that scenario of hardness of face, the frustration of dealing with something that I'm now responsible for putting back together and I don't know how it works. The book of Ecclesiastes is part of biblical wisdom literature, and it's helping make us wise, and it's doing so in a way that's not easy and comfortable, but, but a way that we need for real wisdom. Because wisdom is not knowing and understanding everything. That's what some of us think. If only I could learn everything, then I'll know everything, and I'll always know what to do. And Ecclesiastes, like the last verses in our reading, keeps reminding us we never know everything. We are not God. God knows everything. No person knows everything. So, so we have to go through life not knowing everything. Now, some people, that's very troubling. Other people, they're okay not knowing everything as long as I know what to do and as long as what I do eventually works. But the book of, the book of Ecclesiastes, this, this figure, Koheleth, the teacher we're learning from, that's what we call him, Koheleth. Uh, Koheleth tells us, but we also can't always control things. <laughs> we can't always get the outcomes we want. And that makes for a situation where the hardness of face uh, fits. I mean, wh why in re relaxation techniques do you close your eyes, breathe, and then think of every muscle in your face and try to relax them? <laughs> because that's what happens biologically to us when we face scenarios of frustration. We think we know what we're doing and we're trying and it's not working. And some of us then doubt, do we know what we're doing? Am I interpreting it right? Some of us stay the course and think I just need to push harder. But the end result, no matter how we're wired, uh, will be frustration. And all of us face situations like that. Now, I would say this last year that we've been in, in a heightened way, has brought about the hardness of face. I think all of us are a little bit uh, stressed, high strung, low on patience, low on grace, low on ability to make uh, relaxed and wise decisions. And it crops up every now and then in things like what happened this Wednesday, this, uh, this terrifying and infuriating incident in Washington, D.C. with the storming of the Capitol. You, you watch this and immediately the response we have is who gets to interpret this? And so what happens is what are the images we'll choose to tell the story or within an image, within an image what do we see? And we're now seeing that people see very differently. We note different things. And, and on the one hand, that has the potential to gain wisdom. Each of us are contributing different things and let's put it together so that together we can understand and make a difference. Except we're seeing these contrary things. And now uh, our faces are hardening and our hearts are hardening towards one another. What on earth do we do? <laughs> and we need wisdom. And, and I, when I originally was planning on uh, preaching on this text on Monday, I wasn't going to spend too much time on verses two to nine, but I'm, I'm going to spend a couple of minutes there just at, at the beginning, because they are the kinds of verses that could offer so much for exactly this kind of situation in a political situation. 
And yet, because Ecclesiastes is this challenging book, trying to make sure that we don't come to quick and simple conclusions, that we don't just get what affirms how we're naturally thinking or think that just one new idea will radically change us. But, but the reminder here that, that, that we don't have this, this thorough wisdom, we don't have this full understanding. And, and the, the process of gaining wisdom is engaging that struggle and keeping at it and learning. And we're not good at that because we want uh, quick and easy solutions. So for example, uh, verse two, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Now, right there, you could see the subtlety. He's not saying keep the king's command because the king is always the most competent, uh, most trustworthy being. This is a book that's talking, okay, for people of faith, do you believe in God? God who is the king, God who is sovereign. And then look at the rulers and the powers of this earth. To a certain degree, you need to listen to them. Why? Well, out of your respect for God. Now, Ecclesiastes is written to people in a monarchy, in a theocracy, in a sense, uh, th that those work together in Israel. Keeping the king's command, the king of Israel acknowledged, was supposed to fear God, and there were prophets who would hold that king accountable. Now, that's not our situation. The interesting thing in the New Testament is you'd think that there would be an overturning, okay, we no longer have a godly king who studies scripture, who's accountable to prophets, and who himself we know fears God. So therefore, this no longer applies. What's interesting, you go to the book of Romans and other places, and the same principle out of our fear of God, our reverence, our being under him, that changes how we relate to the powers and authorities of the world to a certain degree. So some would think, therefore, what you do is whatever the ruler says, whatever the king says, whoever's in charge, the president, uh, the CEO, just do what they say. And that makes sense, right? Because if somebody is in a position of power and authority, presumably they got there with some wisdom, some understanding, people have confidence in them. And so they have to, as leaders, to make decisions that we don't understand. And so we can't challenge everything. We can't know everything. And so, so the, the, the alternative, the, where everyone does what they want and no one listens, is not a good alternative. It's better to, to allow leaders to lead. And so there's your wisdom principle. I now know what to do. When somebody in power says something, do it. Uh, what's helpful about this verse being uh, coming to us from Koheleth in the book of Ecclesiastes is he also tells us this, this specific verse in the context where it doesn't seem like he's saying, look, kings are wonderful, trustworthy. Uh, read the book as a whole, but even in this one passage, we're finding that he's grappling with this unjust broken world. And so uh, he goes on to say in verse nine, all this I observed while, while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. So he's not saying obey the king because kings are always wise and people are always foolish. And so, so then what do you do? Because part of the wise principle, when you realize the king is not in line with God, and there's a tension there, God who's in charge of all, we're to listen to the king and we're to listen to God. The king is not listening to God. What do we do? Well, you'd think that this, the simple application of this is do whatever the ruler tells you. But we all know that there are times that, that submission to God as king means don't submit to what the king tells you. And so there's times that actually we need to, uh, in faithfulness to God, resist, speak out. 
And so that seems the better principle. That's the the better principle, it would appear. That's actually more in line with how people seem to be thinking in the in the recent period. So maybe we drop keep the king's command and we go with stand up to power and hold them accountable. Because that's also wise, right? Because what happens if you have a ruler that's not honorable, that's not telling you the truth? You need to stand up to them and confront them. That's wise. That makes sense. So let's do that. <laughs> So, so, so we want the simple principle, which do we do? Now we have a clash between just do what the, the person says or always stand up and hold them accountable. And what Koheleth reminds us is if you're looking for the one thing that you understand that helps you to control every situation, you haven't advanced in wisdom. You've learned something, but here's the thing is when you have a good king, you don't wanna keep challenging them, that you don't wanna keep correcting them. You don't want to disobey them because there's anarchy. But on the other hand, when you have the corrupt ruler, you don't want to just do what they say because they say it, because then you'll have oppression. And so wisdom is needed. We need to learn to interpret because this world is complex. And so in verse five, we're told the wise in heart will know the proper time in the just way. And that's what we need help with is in the proper time, and go back to Ecclesiastes 3, one of the most famous passages in the whole book, there's a time and a season for everything, a time to build up and a time to tear down, a time to mourn and a time to rejoice. So the question is, what is the particular time we're in? Is, is this a time that we're just to recognize we, we don't know and allow somebody to lead? Or is this a time where we are to stand up and resist? And that, of course, takes interpretation. And the book of Ecclesiastes is not going to tell us exactly what we should do this week or even in this extended time period, but it's going to remind us if we don't want to read our situations wrong and do what is unjust or unwise or untimely, then we need to be anchored in something bigger. And here, the foundational thing, along with all of scriptures, to say everything you're doing as you're interpreting life, society, your actions, your thoughts, has to be with confidence uh, in the goodness and the wisdom and the power of God and a humility about all human wisdom and power. And so that being said, I, I want to offer a perspective on three inclinations that, that are at play here. The inclination to evil, the inclination to give up, and the inclination to joy. As we try to say, we're going to go back into the world this week and who knows what we're going to face that's new or who knows the repercussions of what's already happened how do we understand enough of what's going on when we don't know everything, when we can't control everything? What do we do? There's not easy, simple answers, but we're told that if we seek God, if we pray, if, we, if, we're, if we're trying to walk with him, we won't get everything right. It won't be easy. But in our struggle, we could avoid the pitfalls and maximize doing right. And so let's see how this passage could offer uh, steps towards that. So first, I'm going to talk about our inclination to evil. This is one of the warnings of scripture that all of humanity have that inclination in them. Every one of us, um, all of us are in the image of God and we have, a, have the impulse to do good, but, but there's corruption in all of us. And so what that means is we need to be very careful with ourselves. We need to be very careful with others. We don't wanna become cynical. We can't be untrusting, but we fully trust one alone, God. So it's not that we trust our own hearts. It's not that we trust our leaders. It's not that we trust a certain ideolo ideology. We trust God. But out of that faith, we're supposed to get help to make discerning uh, evaluations as we're trying to make decisions in life. One of the problems in how we function in the world is, verse 11, 
because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. And see, there's a, there's a misinterpretation when you do something wrong and there's no negative consequence, the lesson could be, wow, I'm so glad I got away with that. I better never do it again. But the inclination of the heart is, actually, maybe let me try that again and see if that works. When we look at others and we see when people do wrong and they get away with it, the interpretation that we get is being good doesn't pay. It's foolish. It's a waste of time. It's a disadvantage. And so, so it looks like you could sort of do the things you want to do, the things that you feel that other people define as wrong. But hey, if nobody finds out or if they find out and if I could talk my way out of it, well, then it's okay. And that would be a misreading. That would be interpreting reality wrong, except the fact is there seems to be this problem that, that justice is rarely tied immediately to the, the action and the consequence is not always there. And so much of the world winds up not tied together neatly that, that it looks like injustice is, is the right way of interpreting the world. That's just how it works. If you can't beat it, join it. And yet, Koheleth is warning us, Ecclesiastes is warning us, that would be reading things completely wrong to think that because somebody can do something wrong and there's not an immediate consequence, that that then is an affirmation or an invitation to join in that, that is foolish. That's not how the wise perceive things. And so the book of Genesis chapter three, we see a dialogue between Adam, Eve, the serpent. And the serpent comes to deceive them. He's trying to trick them. And, and his technique is to reinterpret for them. He doesn't come out and say, look, I'm stronger than God, or here's what I could offer you. It's, it's not straightforward. It's deceptive. Well, what did God say? And, and how are you interpreting this? And maybe God doesn't have your best interest in mind. He doesn't come out and say, maybe I don't either. Evaluate it. He doesn't, he doesn't offer them objectivity. He, it appears as though he's offering them objectivity. And so, so what did God say? Well, God said, in the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. There's going to be an immediate consequence, almost as if you reached out to touch the tree, you'd get hit with a bolt of lightning. And they're told, well, look, isn't it like other trees? Isn't it pleasing to the eye? Doesn't it look like it would taste good? And the puzzling thing for the Bible reader is, well, was the serpent right? Because in the day that they ate of it, they didn't die. Adam and Eve ate the fruit. And didn't God say, in the day you eat of it, you will die? And yet there wasn't an immediate judgment as we think of it. And so that, that challenge from the serpent, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Is, is that what God said, Eve? Are you sure that that's the principle? You know, it's funny, in my, my legacy as a minister, I sort of think my greatest insight the one thing that I have to offer is I've grappled with that question and I think I've come up with the answer. And I shared this in our Genesis study when we were preaching through it, but I think this might be the, I finally figured out what should Eve have said when, when she says, well, God says, surely you will not die. Uh, surely when you eat this, uh, you, you, that's what the serpent says. You will surely not die. What should Eve have said? And, and here's my proposal. I'm not sure this is hundred percent right, but when the serpent said, you will surely not die. Eve should have said, I will die, and don't call me Shirley. 
That's the best that I could have in interpreting that moment. I don't know exactly what she should have done, but I know that she should have read that situation to say, God said, I will die. And I don't even understand what death is, but I'm going to trust him. And the funny thing is, it could look for a moment as though the serpent was right, except that the, the, uh, the echoes of death already begin. <laughs> uh, because Adam and Eve, they die. They wind up having their last breath at some point, but it's years later. In between the eating of the fruit and their death, as we know death, they have children. They do things. But immediately, they're removed from the, the living God, and they're ashamed, and they're in hiding. And immediately, their relationship breaks down. And then... Pretty soon after the conversation, they're exiled. They're kicked out of the presence of God from the Garden of Eden. And they wander in the world. And, and it takes a while, but, but at some point, their own children get into a disagreement where one kills the other. And so God says, when you turn from me, death will come. And the serpent comes in and says, well, will, will it surely come? Does it come quickly? Maybe this whole thing is wrong. Maybe God doesn't have the power over death and it leads us to, to, to misread things where, where you look and you say, well, actually, death began the second that they stopped trusting God. But death re reached its culmination and climax, the, the final sense of judgment, the, the justice of God who says, you can't do this, happened later. So, so how do you exist in between the wrongdoing and the judgment? And the interpretation of the serpent was, you can't trust God. God's not straightforward. Well, God is straightforward. The serpent is not. The right interpretation comes from something like 2 Peter chapter 3. So here's the New Testament. How do you interpret this long waiting for God to fulfill his good promises in the midst of this corrupt world? Peter writes, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And here's the interpretation. Why did God not act immediately? Well, God is just. And if he says this leads to death, it will lead to death. But the serpent never talks about the kindness and mercy of God. That God allowing time before death means there's the opportunity for forgiveness, for reconciliation. That on the other side of that consequence, um, there's a hope for a future beyond that. That one terrible action doesn't define your whole future. But one ter terrible action disorients things, brings about a just consequence. But God in his kindness would show his patience because God's desire is not that any of us would, would die, but that all of us would receive life from him. And so between our mistrust and our disobedience and our last breath, God holds out his hand and says, return, <laughs> understand my patience and grace. Make, let's make right what went wrong because we don't want death. You didn't trust me. You didn't listen to me, but but there's, there's an open hand. It, the, the, the end is not there, but there's an opportunity to turn and to fix this, not in a way that denies God's justice, but in a way that denies our foolishness. And that's something we rarely see. And it is not an easy thing to receive 
or it's not easy to hold on to. As we look at a world where people do wrong and there's not a a, a just response. Now, in the way that the world executes judgment with our police and with our courts and with our prison system and all of these things, there's enough problems that the reason that there's not an immediate uh, correction or, or an immediate dealing out of justice is not because the system is so good that it's just allowing a, a chance for change. It's because of problems. It's because of mishandling things. It's because of corruption. It's because of human limitation. It, you could point to a bunch of things. And, and so, so God's delaying things may not always be exactly the same, but here we are in God's world and we're left with the fact that, that evil continues. And, and the wrong interpretation is God doesn't care. And so why bother continuing on? Why not join this? Or, or actually, maybe God doesn't see everything. So maybe God does care about this, but he's just busy with other things. Maybe I can do something. What we're told scripturally is that would be the wrong interpretation. That would be to misjudge God. It would be to misjudge you, your heart, your responsibility. It would be misjudging the world. The world has corruption in it. You will see the inclination in your heart to think, I want to do things I shouldn't do. When you think, here's my opportunity to do it, you've misunderstood the scenario. God gives you the the possibility to do wrong, but he gives you the possibility to do right. If you interpret the situation to think the possibility to do wrong is the thing to do because nobody will see or I won't be held accountable, then we have misinterpreted. (laughs) We've read this situation wrong. And so what we're told here is the kind of inclination of the heart where where you see that you want to do something that you know you shouldn't do. Sometimes morality is confusing, but often we know what we want to do is not the thing we should do. We know it. The thought that comes in and says, what if no one ever finds out? That is a dangerous step in the direction you know you should not be going. What if nobody sees? What if I could get away with this? And that is where we need to know the inclination of our our, our own evil hearts. We will misread what is going on in the world. Whenever there's corruption and we think that we can join it or where there's goodness and we think that that will distract so I could do something and get away with it. We're told that this inclination towards evil is foolish. So we're warned about it. Uh, We're also reminded from this book and in this passage that injustice will stir an inclination to give up. So here's the thing. We live in a world where where we're called to do good. There's so much opportunity to enjoy, experience beauty, to build one another up, to do all these wonderful things. But in the midst of that, there are temptations within us and there's corruption in the world. When when the world is going well, when things are functioning orderly, there are times and seasons for that. The corrupt see an opportunity. Maybe while that's going on, I could get away with this. The problem is once enough people join that and then corruption becomes the dominant thing we're dealing with, the good don't tend to have the experience of maybe there's some good I could do in the midst of it. (laughs) But actually the the, the, uh, inclination is the opposite. One temptation is I'm going to join them. I'm just going to do what's evil because that seems to be what works. But as we hold on to our moral foundation, most of us would say, I know I can't do that, but we get tired. (laughs) I can't keep going on. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. Why bother standing up? Why bother resisting? Why bother fighting back? And it's that tiredness that wears down the wise and the good. And this is where we need more wisdom to interpret things, to realize uh, if we're wanting to give up, we need something that's going to help us 
to keep going. And so we need to know that, that there are times in, now we never know everything, but when things are going well, we're okay with it. But there are times and seasons where we really don't have a firm grasp on what to do or what to understand. Verse 17, I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. God is always doing something. God is always at work and we're told that God is good and the end result we will see is wisdom. But in the present, we don't always see what he's doing or how it's working. And so that's something that we hold on to. Verse 14, there's a vanity that takes place in this earth. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. In the previous verse, the person who lived a a, a scandalous life in the city among the people at his burial is honored. So so it's too late. There's no chance to do justice because he lived and then he's rewarded with a memory that people... People are misinterpreting his legacy wrong. And that drives Koheleth crazy. What on earth do you do when you live in a world where where the deeds of the righteous don't bring about honor and joy and fruitfulness, but you seem impractical and laughable, you're marginalized. And the deeds of the corrupt seem savvy. They seem insightful. They seem to have skill. They seem to read the world properly. And we're told that the, 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 the two possibilities we're considering this morning, one is... I've got evil inclinations, I'll join with it. The other inclination is hevel. (laughs) That's the Hebrew word in Ecclesiastes translated vanity in verse 14 elsewhere throughout this whole book. One of the themes of the book, hevel, uh, this Hebrew word for vanity, meaninglessness. Um, It's like a vapor. It's it's like the clouds. The clouds look so comfortable and tangible and you you wanna bounce up and down on them, but if you try to grasp them, they're, they're not there. You, you can't take hold of it. Koheleth is, is dealing with a world where because things do not happen in a wise and orderly way, it feels hard to know what to hold on to, what to grasp. What do you do? How do you not get lured in? And one of the things we need to do is to not grow weary, <laughs> to not join those who are corrupt, but to not think that holding forth the ways of God and trusting him uh, are not worthwhile. And so, so the interesting thing is the inclination of the evil heart is to say, you know what? There's actually good in that there's not immediate consequences. That's to my advantage because then I have freedom. I could, I could do what I feel. I could do what I want. Maybe there are things I can do and there will not be consequences for them. And what we don't realize is the short-term benefit of saying uh, my, my actions don't have consequences. There's, there's, there's a sense in which doing this doesn't mean I could expect that outcome. But Koheleth warns us is, once you've upcu- uncoupled meaning between your actions and consequences, in the short term, it's wonderful because it means you can do whatever you like. In the long term, what it says is nothing means anything. See, that freedom that we want out of the evil inclinations is, if I could do what I want and no one will see and I could get away with it, we think we've created the proper life for ourselves, but we're told is, But if your actions have no real consequences, then at the end of the day, you're passing time and you're acting on instincts that builds to nothing. And there are consequences. There is death and there is accountability. And what we're stuck with in the meantime is this experience of vanity. Nothing means anything. And that's the effect of corruption. When when people start acting on our inclinations, our evil inclinations, everyone 
is subject to a culture of vanity. What on earth is going on? What means anything? Is there any hope? And so, so here, here's what Koheleth commends to us, an inclination to joy. This is a surprising thing from this guy in this book. And I don't mean just in this passage, because he keeps saying throughout the book, he keeps bringing up joy, but, but it doesn't seem to make sense because he doesn't come across as this happy guy. Why does he keep bringing things back to saying, look, in the midst of this vain world where we can't make sense of anything, we can't control things, we need to proceed through it wisely. Why does he commend joy? And this is where we don't fully have the wisdom as, as Bible readers. How many times do we read Ecclesiastes and say, I still don't know how this whole thing holds together. The biblical scholars themselves are still fighting that out. What we don't expect is Koheleth, this guy, to say in verse 12, yet I know it will be well with those who fear God. See, it seems like everything he's been saying till now is, we have no idea what God is up to. We don't know. Why would he say, but I know it will be well with those who fear God. I mean, that fits the conclusion the end of the day, fear God, keep his commandments. <laughs> That's the conclusion. But some people would say that the guy that put the book together, the narrator, he said that, but Koheleth himself, he, he didn't believe that. And so, so did, he, did he really say this? Did he say in the midst of this, I know it will be well with those who fear God. I think the reason Koheleth kept going <laughs> through these various experiences of life, of pleasure, of wealth, of power, of all of the things that we've been reading about that he experiences how does he not give up? Because underneath it all, for all that he doesn't know and all he can't control, there seems to be this underlying confidence. But I know that wisdom is that those who fear God will have lived well and it will pay off. And that is an anchoring point. And so from that, he looks out and he sees that in the midst of this corrupt world, God does things that are kind and people who are wise receive them and have enjoyment. And so their lives are not easy. They're, they're not free from troubles, but they have enjoyment. But he said, but I'm looking around with people that find enjoyment in possessions or in power or in any of these things. And I find that their joy quickly fades and then they're stuck with vanity. And so he commends joy because he's commending something that's much bigger. And what we need in a time period like we're in, that's utterly confusing and it feels like everything's unraveling. I as an individual have no control. We as a well-meaning people, whoever, however we group ourselves together, feel like we, we, we don't have control. What we're told is if we fear God, we can trust that it will be well with us. Not that everything we try will succeed, not that things won't get, get worse, but in the grand scheme of things, God's goodness will sustain us, the hope of it. And so, so Koheleth commends joy. And so, so that's verse 15. I commend joy. That, that, that's what he offers to us in the midst of this, in the midst of this, but it really comes up enough in the book that, that I want us to take that with us. But now going back to verse two, keep the King's command, a Christian read of this book, what we heard about in the children's sermon, who is the King? And there's a sense in which Ecclesiastes is reminding us under God, there's always human beings who rule. <laughs> And we need, to, we need to let people lead and we need to follow them. But we're reminded that people will use power to hurt others. And so, so what do we do in any particular situation? What hope is there? Well, God has told us that, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to one person. There's one person who wasn't democratically voted in, who's not ruling for this time period, but there's a person appointed by God, Jesus Christ. 
in the line of David, wh why all this talk about David in the Christmas stories? We have, we have the king God appointed. We have the one that now when we're told, keep the king's command, we have one person we can trust. I know this person is good and wise. And therefore, in the tension of my misunderstanding, if I'm obedient to that king, then as I relate to the powers and authorities of this world, I can know the time and the season to know what of the way and the teaching of Jesus that I apply to this scenario so that I strive to do the right thing. And so why should we trust Jesus so fully when we can't trust our president? Why should we trust Jesus so fully when we can't trust every journalist with such, uh, with such freedom? Is there anyone we can trust when you can't trust your own heart? What we're told in the Bible is your, your fear is warranted because of this corrupt world. Your cynicism is warranted, but don't live by fear. Don't become cynical. And the way we do this is recognizing God in his goodness has appointed a king whose commands we fully keep. We will learn of his ways and we trust his word and we trust that it will go well with those who fear God. And how do we do that? Well, Koheleth commends joy. And we say, but my life is not joyful. All the things that I want, God is not giving me. And then we remember Jesus Christ, who the author of Hebrews in chapter 12 says, fix your eyes on him. So don't look at your president. Don't look at the angry mob. Don't look at your identity group. First and foremost, fix your eyes on Jesus because he's the author and perfecter of our faith. So he begins it, he's going to finish it. And, and what do we see? We see the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he took the seat at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. It's not that Jesus was this happy-go-lucky guy, but he was a man of sorrows. But was he a guy that didn't think about joy? <laughs> there was a joy before him because he understood the wisdom of the plan and purposes of God. And for that joy, he faced the shame of the corruption and injustice of this world. And what we're told is there's one person who wisely navigated this world. There's one person who got it right. And the justice of God was established in that moment that now our interpretation is not that God doesn't see or God doesn't care or God will never do anything, but God holds out a gracious hand to say, sinners, come to me. All of us have the evil inclination of our heart and we act on it and we're told, but there's a chance for forgiveness. There's a chance, a possibility for change. And there's a hope that you won't get caught up in the evil or overwhelmed by it or you won't give up. So the next verse in verse three of Hebrews 12, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. How do we not grow weary and faint-hearted? Fix your eyes on Jesus. What do we see with Jesus? There was joy before him. And that joy before him gave him the energy to stand up in this joyless situation where the corruption of humanity is coming against us and it enabled him not to give into it or to back away from it. He's the only one we can trust to do that. So now he gives us his commands. And we're told if we want to wisely navigate this difficult world in the times and seasons, we need to believe that it will go well with those who serve and love and honor the king, those who have received his grace and forgiveness, those who recognize that God allows this to continue. We don't know exactly why, but one opportunity in it is there could be more joy of more people seeing the wrongness of their ways and following Christ and, and returning. And so we have to apply this because it's not easy. 
a scenario like Wednesday, where you have a white supremacist group that has a flag saying Jesus 2020, it looks like the thing we would say, if Jesus is the true king, let's go where he's named. Except that we have a group that's advocating something else and trying to bring Jesus into it. And so wisdom has to say, oh, that's not where Jesus's kingly rule is happening in the storming of the Capitol. And so, so it looks like they're bringing Jesus with them, but it doesn't look like Jesus has gone before them. And therefore, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what to believe, but I know that I'm not going to join that team. And, and does that tell you what team to joy, to, to join? Does that tell you um, what policies to advocate for? I don't know. But I know that it will go well with those who believe that you could wholeheartedly and fully follow Jesus Christ. And as we fight that fight, Somehow, for everything we get wrong, God's kindness will be there. And so pursue joy, trusting and following Jesus Christ. He may bring you through unjoyful experiences, but, but pursue it and recognize that on the other side of it, there's joy. And what that does, that brings the sustaining reality into the present. So sometimes we have to, have to say there's no joy in my life, but I'm going to hold on trusting that, that right living will lead to that grace, God's generous gifting of that future joy, not because of how I lived, but because of what Jesus Christ gives to me. That sustains us. But there are periods of time where we see in the midst of this difficult world and in the midst of our struggling lives, installments of the kindness of God, that future joy occasionally breaks in and it strengthens us, it relieves us, it reminds us that it will go well with those who do good. There was this study done in Holland uh, of these Dutch, uh, Dutch researchers some years ago, maybe 10 years ago, on vacations. And they were trying to figure out what kind of vacation leads to a good resuming work. <laughs> and the funny thing is those who didn't take vacation and those who took vacation didn't necessarily re-enter uh, the period uh, you know, radically different. And so they're trying to figure out what kind of vacation really works. That's a topic for another time. The one thing that they noticed, they're like, but one thing that we see is people that plan a vacation, that they're intentional, even if the planning is stressful because you're trying to figure out all these decisions, there's something about knowing that something good is coming that, that then pays benefit in future reality, in present realities. And so, so whether or not going on the vacation does everything you want for you, knowing that there's something ahead seems to bring something into your present. And, and it's that joy before Jesus that enabled him to endure the hostility in the cross. What we're told is there's a greater joy before us that God in his grace will give to those who will not waver, who will not walk away, but who will trust him, who will uh, keep his commands, who will be faithful. Uh, we're told that not only can you endure complete joyless periods, but every now and then God will break in. <laughs> And you will see an experience of that joy, which is to say the interpretation of this world is not that it's thoroughly corrupt or unjust, but somehow in the midst of it, God is always present and we are to be the reality of God's faithfulness in it. The, uh, the founding pastor of our church, Charlie Drew, would occasionally use a phrase that, that, that some of you who have been around for a while have heard, um, hugs from God. <laughs> there are times where we feel overwhelmed and yet God, it's like he pauses in the midst of our struggle and he shows us some kindness or he, he brings some relief or he does something that's a reminder of God's fatherly care. And it's not always there. And sometimes we just need to endure and be faithful. But when it's there, enjoy it. Seek after joy, a joy that's focused in God.
because there's a future joy for us secured by Jesus, but there are present joys in this corrupt world. And when you grasp that, when you become convinced God is good, Jesus is trustworthy, you start to interpret the world where you say, I don't need to make excuses for things. I don't need to bury my head. The world is corrupt. We have work to do. But God is good. And God has been kind to me. And therefore, I have strength today because uh, I can trust that something of God's goodness might sustain me. He may grant me that hug that reminds me that he loves me and cares for me and I don't need to give up. So this week, don't act in your own inclination to evil. Don't act on your inclination to give up. <laughs> but seek the joy of the Lord and trust him. And we'll have to make decisions where we don't have all the information. Uh, but let's seek to align our decisions with Jesus Christ and trust that at the end of the day, we make, may make mistakes, but it will go well with those who fear the Lord. Let me pray for us. Our Father, I pray this knowing that right now some of us are very confused. I confess my own confusion this week, not knowing how to think, not knowing what to feel. Uh, Lord, I trust that some of us experience that confusion. I trust some of us have clarity, morally sound, see it right. I trust that some of us think we're morally sound and are confused. And so, Lord, all of us need your leading and grace. What we have in common, one thing we have in common is a gathering is we are a people who don't know all things and will mess things up if, uh, if we have our ways. But you are a God who is good and you are faithful and kind. So we pray for ourselves. Help us not to, to get pulled into anything corrupt. Help us not to give up the calling to stand up for what's right and to be people of truth. Lord, but we also pray for our world. We, we pray for uh, our elected leaders who have to make decisions based on what just happened and anticipate what's going to happen, grant them such wisdom so that those who lead in our country and in our world would lead in a way that looks like the leading of Jesus. And we pray that you would repair all of the brokenness, that you would fix uh, all of the, the sin that's made its way into every component of society. Uh, and Lord, we pray that we would not have to wait until the end of the ages to see progress and that we would see your kingdom on earth, even as it is in heaven. So Lord, raise up people with wisdom to lead us. And we pray that the voice of Jesus would speak clearly and would be imitated by all who have opportunity to demonstrate what uh, power and authority under your goodness looks like. We pray for our world. We pray for our church. We pray for ourselves. Lord, have mercy on us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.